It's a typical camp. All the normal activities, canoeing, archery, sports. There are two girls who everybody calls the homesick girls who will cheerfully identify themselves that way to anybody they meet. Yeah, she, she wants, wants to go home. home. I do, I swear to God, I want to go home. The food is I like want to go best. home too. Including me. Because it's a pretty upscale camp, there's also horseback riding. And on the rifle range, suburban girls from Chicago's North Shore lay on their bellies in sniper position while a real former Israeli soldier barks orders about how to shoot. I know it's really hard for you ladies to keep it quiet, but try, okay? <laughs> Aim and fire. The boys' cabins are all named after Indian tribes. The girls' cabins are all named after women's colleges. So perky little suburban kids are constantly informing you, I'm an Apache, I'm Mohawk, I'm in Vassar, I'm in Bryn Mawr. And it seems pretty simple. But everybody here will tell you. No one back home understands it. None of their friends, nobody. There is just a gap between camp people and non-camp people. I know, like, all the time during school, I'm like, I want to go to camp, I want to do this. Camp is all I talk about during the year. Really? Yeah, my friends get so mad at me. They're like, we don't want to hear about camp anymore. Because, like, everything that goes on at home, you can always think of something that, like, relates something that happened at camp. And so then you tell that, and they'll be like, camp, we've heard about camp way too much. It's also, like, little stories you tell, and, like, you think they're so funny, and everybody in your cabin understands them, and then you go home and you're laughing, and they have, they give you, like, a look like, what are you talking about, and, like, that's stupid. Well, today in our program, we try to bridge the gap between camp people and non-camp people. We try to understand what is the cult-like, mystical connection some people feel with their summer camps. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, notes on camp. Six different notes, some recorded at a summer camp, and some amazing stories that actually came from you, people who listened to this program and called us up to talk camp. Stay with us. Most of today's program takes place in Michigan, not far from Paw Paw. Two affiliated camps, Greenwoods and Lake of the Woods. One is a boys' camp, one's a girls' camp. But they sit on the same land, they share everything. Basically, they function as one camp. Producer Julie Snyder and I spent a fair amount of time there. Julie usually hung out with the girls. I usually stayed with the boys. Here, then, our findings. Note number one, Mr. Popular. Let's try the chorus again. Cause so- something in that last part is weird. Counselors David Hemmel and Dean Hines practice a song for Saturday night's camp show. All right, ready? Yeah. Okay. And even Hitler had a girlfriend who he could always call. She'd always be there for him in spite of all his faults. He was the worst guy ever, vile and despised. Even Hitler had a girlfriend, so why can't I? It goes too high there. That's the problem. It's going too high. Even Hitler had a girlfriend, so why can't David Himmel has been coming to this camp since he was 11. Now he's a counselor and a sailing instructor, a college sophomore, a boy with clear blue eyes who actually has no trouble getting a girlfriend. Like a lot of campers and counselors we met at this camp, he says that all the best moments of his life have either been at camp or with camp people. Camp... It's just, it's number one with everything I do, I guess. That's, like, camp is just, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's, like, everything. It, it changes people's lives. Like, people base their life around camp. Like, I would not be who I am if it wasn't for camp. Who would you be? 
um, I don't know. I think I would I enjoy things better now because of camp. You know, like when you live so close to people like this, and it's sort of a college, but um, it's like everybody at camp is just real close knit. It's like a bond that just happens, and that's why like a day at camp is like two weeks in real life. It's like a time warp here. And people at summer camp treat David with the deference that few of us get in real life. He and I are walking around camp one day when a group of 13-year-old girls comes up to us. He's the best counselor. This is my fan club. <laughs> He's the best counselor in the world and we love him so much. What makes him the best <laughs> counselor in the world? He takes us sailing. He takes us sailing. He's cool. We made him all this food, made him a song. And um, we have a song for him. Let me hear his song. No, you guys don't know it. I'll sing it. All across the big lake, Davy's the one that keeps us awake. We got the rudder, we got the sail. Davy, he's our male. We got a D A V E Y. We got a D A V E Y. We got a D A V E Y. Davy, he's our guy. D A V E Y. Davy, Davy, D A V E Y. Davy's number one. Davy's number one. Davy's number one. D A V E Y. Davy's number one. Woo! It's time for lunch. Everyone, get out of your cabins. Please immediately and head over to get some delicious food. That would mean stop playing ping pong right now. Let's go, go to lunch. Almuerzo, la comida. I sit next to Dave at lunch one day. In the mess hall, everybody at camp eats together, and it is constant singing. The girls have their own traditional songs, the boys have theirs, most of the cabins have songs of their own. After the oldest girls' cabin sings their cheer, which by tradition is chanted so quickly that none of the boys and none of the younger girls can figure out what the words are, the oldest boys' cabin, the Mohawks, stands to respond. Dave turns to me. I made that up. What are the words? Well, it's a radio version of the original Mohawk. It's called the Mohawk song. It goes Mohawk once, Mohawk twice, holy jumping, golly gee, cheese whiz, we're the best that ever lived. And it's a clean version. There's a, there's a dirty version with swear words in it. And we started singing at lunch. We kept on getting in trouble. I said, well, we got to make a clean <clears throat> We got to make a clean one. Radio edit. And it just popped into my head. And it's, it's kind of cool hearing that. Like, I started all these things. and Like, what else? Well... When, when somebody has a birthday, you know, we sing happy birthday to them. And this is kind of dumb, but I get a kick out of it. We go happy birthday to you. And I, last year I went, woo! And now everybody does it. And that's, it's just kind of cool. He makes stuff up and uh, it survives. David's a force. David is the one who people turn to. David is the man. At least when it comes to some things. The night of the last camp dance, David wanders the grounds, keeping his eye out for the 13-year-old boys in his cabin. He spots two of them, sitting with two girls, and he says to me, You got four 13-year-olds chilling in a circle. Sitting on the ground. Sitting on the ground, Indian style. It's like a powwow. And uh, Dan, Dan is with Amanda, mm-hmm. and he's going to try and kiss her tonight. Now, has he ever kissed a girl? That's what, that's what I said. Have you ever kissed a girl? He said, well, not, not French, but I said, do you, do you got the, uh, the gall to do it? Can you, do you, have, you know, can you do it? You, you need some pumping up? He's like, no, I got it. So, Which one is Amanda? Amanda's the one uh, with the... The hair braid. The, the, the beads in her hair. Yeah. yeah. Dan is just sitting there kind of quietly. He's not really saying for he's, he's a quiet kid. Uh, he sort of, I mean, when he doesn't really say anything unless he has something to say. Okay, right. So, 
Hey, buddy. He's a cool kid. Yeah, how do you think he's cool doing? Kid. In the cabin or like in general? No, how do you think he's doing over there oh, right now oh, at this moment? Oh, I think he's doing good. She's really into him. In that, in that hair, uh, hair thing, she's got two or three beads. It says A, heart, D. Amanda loves Stan. So, and I talk to her, you know, because I'm you know, like, so how's Dan? Oh, he's fine. You like him? Yeah. You know, so I think he's doing good. One of the things he most likes about camp, David tells me, is the constant ongoing drama. It is a soap opera. And David is one of the people who's always making up skits and songs based on the hundred inside jokes that are at the heart of any camp humor. Later that night, after the dance, all of David's 13-year-olds are back in the Cheyenne cabin, getting ready for bed. And David gets a report from each one. Keith. What are you smiling about? Oh. And Dan? Nothing happened. We just stopped the whole night. Um, well, me and I were just sitting there. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the whole night. We were, just, we were just talking the whole night. And then, um, about really nothing. And then, just after, after we, uh, I didn't get anywhere. I just hugged her at the end. I didn't really get anywhere. Um... What's, if you had tried, do you think you could have? Yeah, I would have. I would so have, but... Fault, no, it's her fault. Why is it her fault? Because she didn't... Well, I could have made a move, I guess, but she didn't. It's her fault, because she... She's not going to make the move. Yeah, I, th- I think she likes yeah, you. you got to go for it. She's got that thing in her hair, one of the kids says. They all resolve that Dan will get another chance. David's got his back. David will see that things go okay for him. Sound stupid when I say it out loud Like I'm just jealous of his silver cloud He looks real good, he drinks diet coke He gets his enemies sent by air, not boat I wish I was him, he gets the women at his feet With all his cool friends, he gets his records for free I wish I was him, he has no enemies I wish I was him Note number two, fear Sure. Kids today, so sophisticated, they have email and PlayStation. It is encouraging, then, to realize that if you get them living in the woods a few weeks, they can be entertained by some of the most stupidly primitive forms of entertainment available since the dawn of civilization. I'm talking about scary stories. Every camp has got them. This is so true, you do not even need me to tell this to you. Twelve-year-olds know this. Like, every, you know how every camp has a little ghost story? Ours is we have a story of Turtle I'll Man. Okay. okay. The Turtle Man story? All right. I'll tell it. Long, you help me out if I do it wrong. A long, long time ago, there was this counselor who's really mean to all of his campers and everything. I can't remember how many years ago it was, but supposedly there was this uh, counselor, and he was uh, dishonorably discharged from the military. And um, he was real, real mean to all the campers. He always took their food and stuff and, like, stole their clothes and stuff like that. He would, like, beat them and everything, and his campers were so afraid of them. And he said, if you tell anybody yeah, if about Yeah, he, he me, said, if you tell anyone about me, then I'll, I'll kill, kill you all. And, he, and they, he would read their letters so yeah. they couldn't write home and tell about it. And, like, one year these campers had a uh, footlocker filled with fireworks, and um, he found them and he took them from them. And so on the 4th of July, the 
guys were like, oh, well, he's so mean, we should, like, try and kill him ourselves. We're not really this vicious here, but... So they put, like, fireworks under his bed, and once he had fallen asleep, they all went up there and they, like, he lit... Was no, he was smoking. He was... Oh. He was smoking a cigarette. And then I guess they could smoke in the cabins because it was, I mean, it was many, many years ago. And there weren't, I guess there wasn't a law. And he took him and he put the fireworks underneath his bed and he fell asleep. And while well, uh, the cigarette fell out of his hand and into the footlocker, the fireworks got lit and he exploded. He ran into the lake, he ran into he the lake on fire. And supposedly um, he's still alive. Every 4th of July, he comes back, and he takes revenge on a camper and pulls him into the lake. Every 4th of July, he comes out of the lake and takes someone in for his next victim. But what really happens on the 4th of July is either a counselor or one of the Mohawks, without asking anyone, goes into the lake and comes out and scares the heck out of everyone. But yeah, they, some really believe it, so it's cool. The older kids are funny in how they handle the ghost stories with the little kids. When producer Julie Snyder was interviewing a group of girls about Turtle Man during Arts and Crafts one day, there was this moment. Twelve-year-olds Rebecca Stern and Sarah Turkisher were talking about how they used to believe in Turtle Man a few years ago when they were little, when suddenly some of the younger girls sitting around, Jenny Mayer and Nicole Horn, piped up asking, well, is it true? And then the older girls, unsure of what to say, in the course of 17 seconds, take every possible position on the issue. Here's the tape. And then you tell all the little kids, but you're kind of cautious. It's not true, is it? No. no. You said it was true. It is true. Who made it up, though? It's a legend. It's, just, it's, it's a, a legend. legend. There's always a legend of camp. Yeah. So is it true or isn't it true? It's not. You'll never know. You don't yeah. know if it's true. Time does not tell. <laughs> no, you'll find out. Really? The 10-year-olds seem to sit on the cusp of belief and disbelief when it comes to stories like this. For them, talking about these stories is just part of the process of trying to puzzle out how does the world exactly work. When you're 10, remember, people are constantly telling you scary stories of murders, of kids with guns. And the thing is, a lot of those stories are true. So you're still figuring out where is the line between fiction and nonfiction. One Saturday night, Aaron Etchler had all of his fellow 10-year-olds in the Sioux cabin completely worked up by telling them the story of Candyman. Candyman, if you know this story, appears and kills you if you say his name 10 times. Aaron said that a friend of his had died this way. He said his friend died from Candyman. He was crying last night because of the Candyman. I was this close to killing myself because it was so scary. And that, like, freaked me out, like, hysterically. I'm like, we had to leave the bathroom light on last night because I keep on saying, turn on the bathroom light on, man. I'm so scared. Like, you can come in, too. We kept our light on the whole night because we were so scared. Bathroom light. What could be more fun than getting scared like that? Nearly all of them had trouble sleeping. So much trouble that they were not allowed to tell any scary stories. Sunday night, I lights out. So, instead, they tried something else. An experiment. I joined them after dark, after evening activity, right before lights out, in their cabin. Who's ready? It's my Let's do it! Okay, guys, ready to be chanceful. I'm Alex, and we're going to do a little sance of our Bloody Mary. So we're going to go into the bathroom. I think our whole cabin's going to because this is going to be a great time. Yeah. What you're going to probably see is a bloody face when you say Bloody Mary 40 times. You'll see the bloody face of Bloody Mary. In the mirror. Yes. Face on the blood, uh, very bloody ugly. Face. It's going to be scary.
I squeeze into the tiny bathroom with 12 10-year-old boys. Some of the boys hold their arms as if they're cradling a baby. If you act like you have a a baby in your hands and you say Bloody Mary 50 times, then you will have actually a dead baby in your hands. And why a baby? It's Bloody Mary's baby, they say. She flew up and then she didn't catch it at the time and fell. That's the story? Yeah. It's called Blue Baby. It's called Blue Baby. Not Blue Baby. It's time to do this Bloody Mary bloody thing. Turn off the lights. Go. Let's get scared. Ready? Bloody Mary. Two. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. They're ten. In a couple of years, there'll be cynics in the bunch, and they'll all be competing to prove they're too cool to believe in stuff like Bloody Mary. But for now, we all watch the mirror. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Stop. How many times did you do it? They're so ready to believe that when the face doesn't appear in the mirror, their first explanation is that maybe you need to chant 50 times, not 40. And then... I felt a baby in my hand. I felt a baby in my hand. It worked. I felt a baby in my hand. So did I. You're supposed to go like this. So did it work? Yeah. Yeah. It worked in a different way than we expected it to, but you felt baby blue in your hands. It took a while after that for them to settle into their beds. When I left, half an hour later, it did not seem like anybody was going to be falling asleep very quickly. Notes on Camp 3. You. Well, a few weeks ago, we invited your stories about camp, and you responded. So many of you with so many great camp stories. Here is a selection. When I was five, my parents got divorced, and my father remarried the day after. In fact, he eloped to South Dakota because in Minnesota, you had to wait six months between your divorce and remarriage. And then when I was eight, my mom died, and we were adopted by, you know, a nice young couple, my sister and brother and I. And I remember one year we went to like a weekend, long weekend type of religious camp that was sponsored through our church, but it had counselors there from a lot of different churches. And there was this one guy there that looked just like my dad. And I must have been, I don't know, nine and a half, ten. I was convinced that that was my father and that he had realized the error of his ways. And I had imagined that there must be some prohibition on him contacting the kids after he put them up for adoption. And I just thought this was his way of checking on us. And I would, you know, say things like leading statements like, do you remember when I was little and you fixed my dolly peaches? Well, of course, he just looked at me like I was nuts. I mean, he must have thought what an odd little girl. But I was sure, and I told my sister, you know, Tracy, isn't that dad? And she said, no, of course not. But I was sure, you know, somehow it made me feel better, as strange as that seems. For that long weekend, that was my dad. My mother emigrated to the United States from Germany in the 50s, and her understanding of American culture and traditions wasn't always quite clear and one of, her, um, one of her confusions was about summer camp. She knew that kids should go to summer camp, but she didn't realize that it usually involved 24-hour adult supervision. So one week she drove us up to a campground on the coast of Malibu and set us up in this tent and left us some groceries, and then she drove home to go back to work. And um, 
so I was left in charge of my brothers when I was 12, and my brothers were 10 and 7. And we were at summer camp. We played in the ocean. We played in the little stream that ran by our campsite. We picked things and tried to figure out whether they were edible. And the only problem that we had really was that we had to keep it a secret that our parents weren't there. And this involved lots of stealth and subterfuge. Um, We would notice that campers were looking over in our direction at some point and kind of wondering where our parents were. So in the morning when we got ready to go to the beach, I would unzip the tent and yell into the tent, Bye, Mom. Bye, Dad. We're going to the beach. See you later. And hope that we'd be overheard doing this. And my brothers kind of picked up on this. So one of them, when he would see a man in a car driving out of the campground, he would, if he was alone, he would yell after him, Bye, Dad. Don't forget the popsicles, as if the guy in the car were going to get us some groceries. We were pretty obsessed with groceries. Um, and a week later, my mom came back. We had called her and told her how much we hated summer camp. And um, she thought that we were extremely spoiled because we didn't appreciate this great outdoor experience that was obviously a big part of um, American life. The first year I went, I was 10 years old. And that was a kind of a fluke because my parents were very committed left-wingers, and they wouldn't let me join the Girl Scouts because my mother called them a bunch of little brown shirts. And they wouldn't let me go to a fashionable summer camp because they didn't believe in fashion. So my father asked a friend where his kids went, and his kids went to this very left-wing Zionist camp. And so they got me in, but uh, we had one day at lunchtime a rock came through the window of the dining hall and it landed in my soup and there was a note wrapped around the rock and it said, we don't want no Jew camps in Wisconsin. And so, of course, being a highly political group of people, they got together and they had discussions and they went on and on and they posted guards. We had to paint our faces black so we wouldn't show up at night and so on. And so a bunch of us were sitting in the dining hall And somebody said, look, out on the lawn. And there was this large cross burning out on the lawn of the campgrounds. And these people came in, and they were all wearing white sheets, and they had these white things over their heads like pillowcases, and they made us all go outside. And there was another guy in a white sheet and a white pillowcase riding up and down on a horse. And they started to yell at us that they wanted the lousy Jews out of Wisconsin and that they didn't want no Jew camps in Wisconsin. And they said, don't bother trying to call the authorities because in this neck of the woods, we are the authorities. And everybody was just petrified. And we all stood around, shaken in our boots. And all of a sudden, one of the counselors said, I'm an American citizen. You can't treat me like this. So two of the guys in sheets grabbed him by the arms and marched him away. And another counselor said, I'm an American citizen. You can't treat us like this. And pretty soon all the counselors were being marched away, and we were all left there. And I got really frightened. So I went, I'm an American citizen too. And somebody came over in a white sheet and took me down towards the beach. And as he was marching me down to the beach, he said to me, Adina, couldn't you have kept your big mouth shut? 
And it was all a political lesson that we were supposed to be learning. Anyway, I was seven, and it was church camp. Um, and several men dressed in black holding machine guns entered the chapel at different areas. Um, they immediately tied the hands of the four pastors on stage and held a gun on the main pastor. Uh, I think as, as soon as the man said, um, if you're a Christian, stand up, the devoted stood and the rest just ran off. <laughs> um, there were kids running all over the woods. Um, and as we walked to our cabin, we saw counselors with flashlights and bullhorns proclaiming it was only a play. We heard kids yelling and cursing and crying, and um, it was pretty bad. Thanks to everybody who called. Thanks to everybody who wrote. Note number four, ritual. Down by the lake, some of the Bryn Mawr girls explained it all to me. Every year it's the same. Same songs, same ceremonies. There's circle and Olympic days. There's color days. There's Mohawk privileges and cabin nights. And there's the dance where the girls choose a boy who they'll marry for one day. And there's the powwow. Um, last year, first session, they took powwow away from us because it was, like, politically incorrect or something. And we were all really upset because powwow is, like, one of our biggest camp traditions because we have, like, a little song or whatever in the beginning. And it's uh, really... uni kuni cha uni a uni kuni cha a uni ay 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 iki ay kai nu ay 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 iki ay kai nu a u and you do like different hand motions and everything to it and it's really fun and then you like challenge other teams it's fun but then second can I, can I, before you continue can I just say that it's really interesting that you can't even tell the story without suddenly bursting into song <laughs> our camp sings a lot besides the singing powwow includes a talent competition one girl her talent she crosses her eyes and like, and, like, Jolie can, like, snap her belly button. Oh, I wear a bathing suit. And, I can, <laughs> and like, I can sing all the vowels in Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> and you just do weird talent. You just do weird talents and you challenge other teams. At the end, if your team's the best, you get a peace feather. Um, the reason it got taken away last year was because a lot of the counselors felt that it was politically incorrect because um, the speeches that the Indians make are derogatory towards Native American culture, if you look at it that way. I asked for examples. A few of the girls hold their palms up in the air and say, how? They launch into these fake pidgin English sentences where they drop lots of verbs and add um to the ends of the words. Like we, we go to Legum of the Woods, um, camp um. Live um in Vassar East um. I teach um camper naps how to walk them on water um. Inside jokes they like put into like um, with adding like stuff that like you know Indians or whatever. It's so funny that it's not like even no one even really thinks about it like that. In fact, fake Indianness has been a part of camping in America since organized camping began a century ago. One of the co-founders of the Boy Scouts of America ran a camp in 1901 in which he organized boys into a make-believe tribe called the Sinaways. The Red Man is the apostle of outdoor life. He wrote back then. His example and precept are what young America needs today, above any other ethical teaching. Indianness meant a real connection to nature, an appreciation for all that was being lost with industrialization and urbanization. Just one generation after Custer's last stand, fake Indianness was an integral part of the early Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts organizations in this country. 
By 1910, camps with names like Camp Minnewawa, Camp Miramichi, Camp Poconoket were springing up everywhere for middle-class and upper-class children. It is still a big part of camping all across America. And after a year without powwow, Camp Lake of the Woods brought the powwow back. Most of this simply has to do with tradition. The special songs and ceremonies are a part of so many American camps. And it's not just because they're fun. A camp director in Wisconsin told us as we were putting together today's program that financially, you cannot run a camp without lots of repeat customers. These traditions bring kids back year after year. You have the kids singing constantly about their loyalty to their cabin mates and their camp. You let them know about all the extra rights and privileges and honors that they're going to get if they return as older campers. It is part of making the business run. And in addition, it's part of what makes camp thrilling. It is using all of the stagecraft that all the world's religions have always used, the ceremonies, the chanting, the repeated words, the official honors and offices, but for an entirely secular purpose, to thrill children, to make them feel part of something big and special. I think it's a really important part of camp. I mean, I personally, like, I like the traditions, like, because it's, like, you know what's, you know what's going to happen, and you, you can, like, trust things, like, that, it's, like, yeah. I, I come back, like, for the traditions, like, like, I expect everything to be here, like, the way it was last year, because that's the reason I come back. Like, if everything changed, I don't think I would like it anymore. Well, coming up, war. What is it good for? Answers. Also, the second mention of the Israeli army in one radio show. That's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. It's is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Notes on Camp, Summer Camp. You know, a lot of the pleasure of being in camp is the pleasure of being part of this team, this group that you just feel loyal to, which also happens to be one of the pleasures of being in the military since ancient times. Well, Adam Davidson is half Israeli, grew up in America, and when he was 15, he went to a camp run by the Israeli army in Israel on their own training facilities. The campers ran the same drills. They shot M16s. It was all designed to convince these American Jews to move to Israel and join the Israeli army someday. It's so exciting because you really feel, I mean, you know that at that age, when you're 15 and you're in Israeli army summer camp, there's no one in the history of the world who is cooler than an elite army unit soldier. I loved the fact that we would go to the bathroom and the toilets wouldn't have a seat because that's a place where terrorists could put a bomb. And it just felt so macho, crouching on top of the seat and showering in this freezing cold water. Because what? A Sayeret Matkal would need hot water? What? Now, for me, for the first few weeks, what was tough about this was that um, I was really a nobody there. And I'd always be bringing up the rear. I'd always be kind of slow. And I wasn't showing myself to be macho, even though there were so many opportunities in a given day to prove yourself macho. I mean, we were always, for no apparent reason, running like crazy from one tree to another tree or up some mountain. Every few minutes, there was something you could be the best at. And I was never the best. 
But all of this changed. My geek status was completely transformed. One night, um, the different units would put on plays. And we were supposed to do takeoffs of fairy tales. And this was some kind of a competition. There was voting over who did the best job. So my group, Lugat Barak, our fairy tale was Steve White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I would be Steve White, this fabulous gay man who lives with these seven dwarfs. And the prince who comes to rescue me would be Rambo. This was one of those moments where... I just knew that I was I was in the zone. I was in my element. I mean, I was from Greenwich Village. I had been a ch- an actor all through my childhood. My dad was an actor. But more than that, there's a way that Americans can be very free that Israelis can't be, precisely because they have to be macho. And no matter what they're doing... Even if they're mocking themselves, they have to maintain that studliness. And I had no obligations in that area. Um, I dressed myself just, you know, I tried not to be too outrageous, but I had to be kind of outrageous for them to get it. So, you know, a little bit of rouge, a little bit of eyeliner, um, my hair kind of slicked back with mousse, and, uh, you know, sort of ridiculously short shorts. And so I'm lying there. And I hear a knock on the door, and I just stand up. And I remember the entire crowd is howling, just howling. And, and I'm, I just do the most awful, mincing, gay voice. Just, who is it? And my friend, who is a skinhead from Toronto, whose parents happen to be Israeli, says, it's Rambo. And I said, oh, Rambo, you sexy beast. And everyone is freaking out, just laughing like mad, like maniacs. And, of course, throughout it all, I'm making jokes about the camp members themselves, like saying, oh, I think Commander Ohlone is just the thing. And everything I say, the entire crowd is just with me, is just laughing hysterically. And what happens to Snow White, to Steve White? I eat the apple, I pass out, and I need to be resuscitated. So Rambo comes to kiss me. And what we had worked out is he put his hand in front of his mouth, and I put my hand in front of my mouth. And we just, you know touched hands and we're kissing our mouths but from a distance it looks like we're making out and i mean at this point the camp is like they're standing up they're howling i mean i have transgressed every boundary that the israeli man sets for himself and um and they are loving the other side and from that point on i was no longer the unknown American bringing up the rear of the uh, obstacle course, I was like a movie star. I mean, everyone, the Israeli guys, particularly like the machoist, toughest Israeli guys, constantly wanted to do this make-out thing where we put our hands over our mouths and make out. You know, we'd be like 
relaxing after some really long hike in the Negev desert or something and, you know, Meir or Shaul or whatever would come up to me and say, it's very funny the way you do this make-out thing. Show me do it. Let's do it. And the first three times I would do it, I mean, I guess part of me was like flattered that like the macho future Sayerat Matkal guys were into me in any way. But after a while, it was just so weird. I'd just be like, look, Shaul, I'm just not going to do that. I don't do that anymore. I'm just not going to do it. And they'd be like, why not do it? It's very funny. That's all. It's not for anything, but just the funny. Now, I've been to plenty of camps, and in every camp, you're somehow a part of a team. I remember in Boy Scout camp, when I was at horse riding camp, it was the people who rode horses in the morning versus the people who rode horses in the afternoon. And I just loved my guys, and I would look in the lunchroom at the other bunk and just... I just didn't understand how you could even live in that bunk. But Israeli Army summer camp is the purest distillation I've ever seen of this joy in being a part of the group I just every week I would do things that I didn't I wouldn't have thought I could possibly do and that was so incredible and I knew that was because of the group I knew that was giving me the force and it was there was never a moment where I had to ask myself can I do it it was just we're doing this Plugat Barak is going to do this Adam Davidson is now a member of our Planet Money team. Though he intended to join the Israeli army when he was 15, never worked out. Note on camp number six, color days. It is impossible to overstate what a big deal color days is at the camp in Michigan Julie Snyder and I visited. It is like any color wars at any camp except that it's three days and once you're assigned a team, a blue team or a white team for girls, black or red for boys, you will stay on that team all your years at camp. There are legacies. Your brothers and sisters will be on the same team as you are. Being named a captain of the color days teams is considered such a big deal that many older campers can name all the captains of all their color day teams going back years. Two girls and two boys are named as captain each year for each team. Only campers from the oldest bunks can be captain. Bryn Mawr is for girls. Mohawks and Blackhawks for boys. Counselors who were once named as captains, if you talk to them about it, they get all choked up when they tell you about the moment they were chosen. Even Dana Hardin, the 29-year-old owner of the camp, went to this long explanation of the ceremony with me at one point, her voice cracking, ending with... Oh, I'm almost in tears right now. <laughs> I really am. Because, it, I mean, it was the biggest honor in my life. Julie Snyder watched the girls' color days this year. Just to give you a sense of the intensity of Color Days, a month before it all begins, an 11-year-old blue team member tells me Color Days isn't all that competitive. I mean, she'd talk to a girl on the white team and everything. And all I could think was, if you have to say something like that, you know there's going to be trouble. The speculation about who will get the honor of being captain of the Color Days team, the biggest honor at camp, is so intense that weeks before Color Days begins, Lindsay Saywitz and some friends in Bryn Mawr East decide to consult Lindsay's Ouija board. Is anyone here? Hello? Who is this? B-L-A-I-R. Blair. Blair. Our old friend. Blair. 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 We talked to her a lot. Hi. Can you, do you know who the colorist captains are for girls? Could you name one of them? Okay. A-L-I-S-S-A. Alyssa. We'll just drive. She'll get it. I bet. 
Everyone thinks Alyssa's a shoe-in. And the Ouija board also picked Jamie Stream, another favorite, and Lindsay Sayowitz, who coincidentally had her hands on the Ouija pointer at the time. Two weeks later, in the middle of the night, all the girls' counselors snake through the cabin area with lit kerosene torches and wake up the girls for the opening ceremonies of Color Days 1998. Girls, it's time to wake up. Everybody up on the bed. Get a pair of pants on, shoes on. Wake up, Bonnie. Little girls stumble out onto the sidewalks, rubbing their eyes, wearing mismatched shoes, and looking confused. Across the way, the Bryn Mawr girls have never even gone to sleep, anticipating this moment when they find out which one of them will be named Color Day's captain. They stand with their faces pressed up to the screen door of their cabin, holding hands and silently crying. Counselors with torches lead 120 girls. They march down to the lakefront and surround an enormous bonfire 10 feet high. It looks like some cross between a debutante ball and a Klan rally. We are here tonight to usher in our three days of competition known as Color Days. I call forth the first spirit. Do you hear me, O spirit? Come forth and tell us who you are and why you are here. Like a summer stock Grecian play, one of the counselors dressed in a white toga comes out of the forest and stands behind the fire. I am the spirit of the white. I represent the clouds of a summer's day, white caps in the water, and the dove of peace and purity. What is the message you bring, O white spirit? It is a difficult thought to convey, but rich in meaning in every way. One can't find peace in a world of dream. Each person is a fraction, a part of the team. We have no choice, everyone must belong. If no one is weak, can the team be strong? I call forth the next spirit. Do you hear me, O spirit? The spirit for the blue team, another counselor in Atoka, appears before the fire and talks about blue and blueness. Candles are lit and the girls vow to abide by the camp's seven virtues during color days. Those virtues? Friendship, determination, sportsmanship, tolerance, enthusiasm, patience, and unity. In order that you may have time to consider carefully the meaning of these next few days, we ask that you now take a vow of silence. Please repeat after me. I will be silent. Finally, the camp director, Dana, picks up four whistles, two on a white string and two on blue. This is the moment everyone's been waiting for and guessing about, the moment Dana remembers so well from 16 years ago when she was at Bryn Mawr. She walks behind all the girls to the last row where the Bryn Mawr sit and silently places the necklaces over the heads of the girls selected to be the captains of Color Days 1998. The chosen girls stand up, sob, and cling to each other. The other girls stay seated, sob, and cling to each other. It turns out the Ouija board was only right about one of the captains, Lindsay Sagenreich. Alyssa and Jamie look shocked and heartbroken. There's so much crying, some of the girls can barely walk straight as they stumble back to their cabins after the ceremony. Because of the vow of silence, there are lots of sniffles, gas, and blowing noses. Color Days hasn't even started yet. For those who don't know yet, I'm Jamie. I'm Lindsay. I'm Beth. 
We have an awesome team. I'm so excited. It's the next morning, and the white team is gathered for their first team meeting. The veteran campers are dressed entirely in white. White shoes, shirts, socks, bandanas. Their faces are painted white. Their hair is painted white. Lindsay and Jamie, the white team captains, are in charge of organizing all the girls, raising their spirits and motivating the team. But it's difficult to hold your first pep rally within the confines of a vow of silence. Under the vow, only team captains are allowed to talk. Hey, you guys excited? Just nod your head. Like that. (laughs) After the flag raising on the first morning, the vow of silence is lifted. And then you realize why it was instituted in the first place. What follows are three days of solid wall of sound screaming. The girls cheer at the individual and team competitions. They cheer while standing around and waiting for their events to begin. They cheer on the way to the mess hall, they cheer outside the mess hall, and they cheer on the way back from the mess hall. They have constant team meetings where they talk about the importance of cheering. You guys, cheering tonight is the most important night to cheer. That's why we cheer so loud. You guys, it is not normal if you don't lose your voices. This is really important, you guys. It's really important. Trying no, your best is the most important thing right now. You run your butt over here, like, as fast as you can, because it is so important that you guys don't miss any of our meetings. But some of the girls, the older girls, are having a hard time cheering. Like, it is really hard to get in on it because I'm telling people to be louder because I know they're not being loud enough, but yet I can't do it myself. Lexi's on the white team. She's a Bryn Mawr, was eligible to be a Color Day's captain, and spent the last night crying. Because of being chosen for Color Day's captain means you're a leader, an intelligent and caring person who looks out for other people. What does it mean if you're not chosen? I didn't expect it, but I really, really wanted captain. And, I mean, it is a disappointment because... I was el- it's something that you're eligible for, and if you don't get it, then you think about, or at least I think about what I did to not do it and what I did wrong and how I'm not as decent as a person as other people. And it's just, I mean, it's a letdown, but it's not everything. And that's, like, what a lot of people lose grip of. That's what I always lose grip of, is that it's not everything as much as it means. But it, it means a lot. Over the next two days, it's basically what you'd expect an all-camp competition would be like. The younger girls and older girls split off. They do track and field events, swimming and boating events, scavenger hunts, and an all-camp song fest. Both teams seem pretty evenly matched, and for the most part, the girls win and lose with grace. Most of the girls I talk with all say color days is their favorite part of camp. They like the cheering. They like the games. They like feeling a part of a team. But one night, after an intense capture the flag game, where blue team pulls it off by one point, one of the white team girls doesn't take the loss too well. White team, can I talk to you for a second? You guys, the blue team is playing very dirty, and none of us should play like that at all. Because that was, like, they knew I was already over, yet they still felt that they needed to trip me. So, But just don't complain about it. We're I just going to kill I them say, tonight. No, I say we get them back right now. By, by screaming so loud that they will have to plug their ears because that is how upset I am right now. 
The climax of Color Days is on the last night of camp, the obstacle course relay, where every member of each team takes part. Usually, whoever wins the relay wins the Color Days. The blue team gathers at their meeting spot on the go-kart track to organize all of the team members for the race. Certain things are clear. Alyssa Strom does the longest run. Carly Siegel always does the math problem. Rebecca Stern rules the pie-eating contest. But there are some open spots, which require careful consideration. Okay. First person... Shh, you guys quiet, okay? This is really important, you guys. Really important. First person is at the flagpole, and they have to eat one peanut butter and jelly sandwich as fast as they can, and sing cheers like the woods, like so fast. You guys, you are up against Lexi Gore. She is the fastest eater She's I've doing. ever seen. Yeah. She can shove it in her mouth. It's crazy. And so... You have to Who's got really, a big really mouth who can eat really fast? I can't eat really fast. Jamie. Jamie, you want to try that? And then choose can you eat one. really fast? So so you can sing while you have food about it. You can do... Jamie, don't eat it tonight. But it's pizza night. Yeah. You guys, you guys. After dinner, the captains and the two peanut butter and jelly sandwich eaters gather at the flagpole to begin the race that will last over an hour. On your mark, on set. Go! Come on, Lexi! Come on, Jamie! 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 Come Oh, I am so scared right now. Like I, I am like, I'm, I'm like here, but I'm not. I'm like somewhere else. Go blue! Yeah. As an outsider watching three days of all of this, I have to say what was shocking was how gung ho everyone was. Camp is this unusually safe bubble where kids can let themselves go, crying and screaming and singing. They all buy into this. None of them stands back. Nobody thinks they're too cool for it. Back at school, the rules are completely different. Everywhere, the rules are completely different. Down at the waterfront, the white and blue team stand side by side with dueling cheering, waiting for the final leg of the relay race. When the last baton is passed, the two captains from each team have to build a fire under a rope that's suspended between two sticks, about three feet off the ground. The first team whose rope catches fire and burns all the way through wins the race. Some Bryn Mawr girls have been saving wood for the burn the rope since the second day of camp. Tonight, the blue team has about a full two minutes on the whites as the runner hands off the baton. The blue team captains, Carly and Dana, drop to their knees and begin with the kindling. They get only one match a minute as they add twigs and sassafras to the fire. Soon the white team starts on their fire. The captain's hands are shaking. Both teams are jumping up and down, cheering and hugging. The first pile of sticks to become like a real fire is the white team's. And the moment it catches, tears start streaming down Carly and Dana's cheeks on the blue team. Both look close to hyperventilating as they lie down on the dirt, their cheeks on the ground, 
blowing on their fire, crying and frantically moving sticks around. But the white team's fire rises, their rope starts burning, and once it snaps, the race is pretty much over. Girls are jumping up and down, collapsing into each other's arms, sobbing and laughing. The younger girls, it's almost as if their little bodies can't take all this emotion. I watch one girl, about eight years old, who stands off to the side, begins to tremble, and her face gets redder and redder as tears pour down her cheeks. A teammate tries to comfort her. It's okay, she says. We won. It might seem strange standing in the middle of a hundred crying girls that most of them will tell you this is the best day of camp. But it's the best day of camp precisely because it's a hundred girls all crying together. If the point of camp is to feel this camaraderie, to feel like you belong to something, that feeling is at its most concentrated during color days. This is also the last day of camp. It's strange. It's this whole thing, there's so many things to deal with, you know, and then... It's just all jumbled in at once, and it's confusing, and I don't know. I talked to Jamie Stream and Lexi Kawertz. Jamie's been here for seven years and can't come back as a camper again. Lexi starts high school this year, and for her, this isn't just the last day of camp, her last day living in this safe little bubble. In a way, it's her last day of childhood. I, I One camp summer has never meant so much to me now that we're getting older, and, like, it's just, I'm so frightened of going into high school that like I I don't want to leave here anyway but I'm so secure here it's such like a haven for me that I I can't imagine going home like also I think it's hard maybe not for you but for me it's like since this is my this is my last year these are my last like three days of ever being a camper and it's like It's so weird. It's like, this is my last Tuesday at camp. This is my last dinner with my cabin. This is my last time ever being in a cabin with my friends. And it's it's like, that's what's so weird about it. Because you're just thinking about this, last this, last that. Like, I, I'm kind of scared to go home in, in a way because, like, my friends at home are so different from my friends here, and it's going to be scary. You're so dull. <laughs> like, the people I, like, I, I don't mean that as in, like, I mean, I love my friends to death, but when you think of the things that we go through here, we're not really living at home. We go to school and we go out, and it's not their fault, but the environment's so different that it's dull living at home. I, I just, I'm perfectly content here with being, you know, just sitting here getting mail. I don't really care as long as I just, you know, like, it's, it's so, it's so strange. And, like, I'm going to miss, like, walking, like, I was just talking to Lauren Turks about this. I'm going to miss walking down the path. I'm going to miss the doors slamming. I'm going to miss the overflowing bathrooms. <laughs> it's just, it's unreal the, that we have to leave. The stupid little things is, are, is what you really miss.
Well, our program was produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Elise Spiegel and Nancy Updike, senior editor Paul Toff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and consigliere Sarah Val. Harmonica music throughout our hour today by Howard Levy. Thanks to the staff and campers of Lake on the Woods and Greenwood Camps in Michigan. Our program today was recorded there in the summer of 1998. Thanks to historian Philip Deloria, whose book Playing Indian details the history of fake Native American culture in American summer camps. Special shout out today to Emily Bernstein, whose stories about summer camp a few years ago in the New York Times were an inspiration as we put together today's program. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. We can get our free weekly podcast or listen to any of our old shows online for absolutely free. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WB Easy Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who calls our contributor, Adam Davidson, at least once a day to demand. It's very funny the way you do this makeout thing. Show me do it. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. It's very funny, that's all. It's not for anything, but just the funny. Public Radio International.